Hello and welcome to Dragon Bites, the paediatric podcast aimed at paediatric trainees and anyone interested in child health. I'm Asim, one of the paediatric trainees here in Wales and one of the presenters for Dragon Bites. This week we continue our episode on child poverty. Two of our Dragon Bites hosts, Dr. Tom Cromarty and Dr. Rebecca Jones, were joined by two consultant paediatricians with an interest in child poverty. First was Dr. Julianne Maney, a paediatric emergency medical consultant from the Royal Belfast Hospital for Sick Children. And secondly, Dr. Ian Sinner, a paediatric respiratory physician from Alderhey Hospital. If you haven't listened to the first half of this episode, I strongly suggest going back to listen to last week's episode first, but we're going to continue from where we left off. Anyway, let's get started. I know you you briefly touched on um, recognizing like from from a medical perspective in hospitals, whether it's an ED or in outpatient clinic or on the wards. Um, how do we recognize? I mean, you, you've talked a little bit already. You know, said about the maybe well, the clothes they're wearing were actually really nice. But um, what are we looking for to try and figure out? First of all, figure out which people we we need to do more for. Uh, sorry, if if we ask that to, to Ian. Oh, sorry. Um, so I, I've kind of come a little bit half circle on this in that um, I think I, I think we should stop trying to spot who's in poverty. And I'd be interested to hear Julianne's thoughts on this. But what I mean by that is um, it's it's a, it's impossible to tell. Like, so, do you know what the people who come to clinic dressed the worst and with like you know who haven't washed and haven't kind of uh, you, you know washed their hair and stuff uh, are often like people who are children of like millionaire artists and stuff is it is very difficult so so i think um i think just looking at how people turn up to clinic or or, or to the ward it's very difficult and um and like i said before you know there are people who are on good salaries or relatively good salaries who are still in poverty, who as Julianne's, you know, in every single hospital in the country, there are nurses and, um, you, you know, people on uh, on lower wages who are going, you know, they're working their, their, their socks off in the hospital and going home via food banks. Um, and it's one of the many reasons why I'm one of the list of things that I'll never, I'll, I'll die on this hill, but car parking should be free at hospitals i will absolutely defend that till the day i die but you know that the, 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 it goes back to this idea that i i think it's very difficult to spot who's in poverty and the other reason i think we should trying to we should stop trying to spot who lives in poverty at individual level is because when we then start to try and address it it carries a stigma with it and like I say, the key thing for me is that we should destigmatize poverty. So if we're offering boxes of fruit to some children in clinic, which we are doing, we should offer it to every child in the clinic. It takes away from this whole idea of, you know, some sort of subconscious means testing. You know, we should just take it away. That said, I think there is an important part of this, which is about spotting the effects of 
poverty at population level and that comes back to you know some of the really important statistics that Julianne was talking about before around things like you know the poorest children being most likely to be hit by trains and stuff you know unless we start to accept that it at structural level or at population level, there are real problems that we need to address, then things won't get better. But I think for children coming to the clinic, it's, it's, it's difficult. And you're, you're probably better off, as, as I'm sure many people do, we're better off just asking the same questions to everybody mm. because you then don't offend the people that... Um, you know, that might get offended, you know, the people that might think that we're having a dig or questioning the way that they're, they're, they're bringing up their children um, and, and just switch it all to a systemic thing. So when we ask about, you know, we, we would never think twice about, I would hope we would never think twice about asking a parent who's brought their child to hospital with a respiratory problem, you know, we should be asking about smoking because that's an important determinant of, 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 of respiratory outcome. But we should also be asking about nutrition. We should also be asking about um, housing quality. So so asking about those elements of poverty, uh, sorry, those elements of, of wider determinants of health, my feeling is we should ask them to everybody rather than try and spot the ones. But I'd be interested to hear about other settings and, and, and you know, yours and, and, and Julianne's thoughts on that, because I may well be wrong. <laughs> No, I completely agree. It should be across the board. And then, you know, if, if people offer up, you know, difficult situations or something that you can do something about, then it's up to you, you know, to, to take that information on board. And um, it's also about poverty of aspiration. You know, we've got a third of children who, you know, could be the next George Best and um, who was born in a very poor area of Belfast, who could be the next Marcus Rashford, who could be the next Picasso. You know, for, for families who are, you know, scra- scrabbling about, to feed their children, you know, those activities that bring you joy, music, art, sport, you know, they're not an option for poor children because um, their parents don't have the money to fund those activities. You know, it's really expensive. Um, And those are the things that make life worth living. And, you know, the daily grind is the daily grind and it's the daily grind for everybody. But the other things that you do in your outside life, you know, poor people don't have hobbies. You know, it's just not something that they have. They work from they wake up until they close their eyes. It's a constant grind. And so, again, you know, it's up to us, you know, to work with education, to work with, um, you know, other other departments to, you know, make sure that every children has at least some access to that. Um, And it took a footballer to point out to the UK government that there are children starving in this country. So, you know, it's, <laughs> there's something wrong, there's something quite wrong um, that an international and um, footballer who, you know, plays for Man United has to point that out to the UK government and shame face them into changing their policy on, on free school meals. I was just going to say, um, yeah, I think, there's uh, no point in, I suppose, asking questions at an individual level that there's an, there's not much that you can do about, you know, at that moment in time. It's just going to make people aware and feel more feel worse about the situation they're in. So it's important to just, uh, you know, ask questions that are relevant uh, and that uh, have an impact on what you're going to do with regard to managing this, this person um, and their family. Um, 
and then take it from there really um so i mean there are yeah. questions we ask about uh you know with regarding to if we've got any safeguarding concerns but we we ask it to everyone we ask have you got a social worker have you ever had a social worker uh, you know when you get used to asking those questions so like matter of factly um th- there's no there's no judgment with it um so so i think it yeah it comes across in a much more acceptable way and um yeah and, and and there comes with that something about you should only ask a question if you're going to do something with the, yeah. you know, saying to someone, oh, do you live in a rubbish house? They go, yeah, you go, oh, that's sad. You, you, you know, actually what we should be saying is, right, and the way that we, you know, the various, I've got a standard line to say to everyone, I say the quality of air that you breathe inside can affect your child's lungs. Are there any problems with damp, dust, condensation or mould in the house? And those are good screening questions. And if they say yes, you know, usually you end up just phoning a landlord or a housing agent or whatever, and 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 they'll sort it out. But you've got to be able to do something if they tell you there's a problem. Like the worst thing we can do, in fact, counterproductive to uh, to asking them the question is uh, is to not then help them. And and we're very like we do a lot of signposting, and like it's it's a word that it, I mean, you know, we all have words that trigger us a little bit and for me signposting is, is one of these I, it's, it's a management word it doesn't mean anything it, it just says i'm i'm absolving myself of the of the need to do something about your situation and if we're going to ask someone a, a question about their living circumstances we need to be able to pick up the phone and and advocate uh, you know for that person to try and make things uh, better we don't need to then send them like we quite often say oh well we should signpost people to food banks but what the hell is that like do, do you know what i mean you, you, you know we, we shouldn't signpost people to, to food people know where the food banks are people know the sacrifices that they make for their for their children um you, you know we we should be looking a lot more at trying to sort out some of the problems ourselves. Is my is my feeling. Julie. Don't ask if you're not going to do something with it. Julianne is nodding fur- furiously. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you, Julianne, you must get. You, you know, my feeling is that eighty percent of what I see in my respiratory clinic, my difficult asthma clinic, eighty percent of the problems I encounter in my chronic lung disease clinic for example are just the manifestations of poverty but oh my god you must see this like this just must be your your life what you know <laughs> your working life must just be dealing with things that could have been stopped am, am i right i've always had that assumption am, am i right in having that assumption yes you're absolutely right um and it's so unjust and so unfair and it's the injustice and the unfairness that um, and you know, for children, they have no choice. You know, they're just um, products of where they were born. You know, they've they've lost the ovarian lottery. You know, by the very fact that they were um, born in West Belfast, for example, one of the lowest, one of the highest rates of poverty in the UK. You know, they have the worst chance than you know if you're born in South Belfast on the Malone Road, and um, which is you know it, it's so unfair. But it's really difficult for us as paediatricians to do anything about it. Because we don't have the ear of government, we don't have the ear of policymakers, and we do in a in a small way through you know the work with the Royal College. But we do as a population, and we do as voters. So you have to vote the people you want to see in government, and um, and you know currently the current government is not making a good um, fist of um, improving our lot and the children that live in poverty's lot. So, um, 
you know, it's incumbent upon all of us as um, electorate to make, you know, our votes count. And it's as simple as that. So, Julianne, can I just ask again? You know, this is something that I think is, 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 is I think really important for, for when we're thinking about poverty at national level. So, so I live in Liverpool. I work in Liverpool, and you know, we have our issues. There's something specific about about Liverpool that you know it, it often. It, you, you know, my, my perception is there are things that that pass us by as a city, but. Um, one of the, you know, one of the things that when you were talking, and I couldn't agree with you more, by the way, about your thoughts on the definitions of poverty. One of the things that we see in the northwest of the UK is that there are different phenotypes almost of poverty. So what we see in inner city Liverpool is different to what we see in patients, for example, who come down from some of our neglected and dilapidated coastal cities, which is different to what we see in some of our semi-urban, semi-rural, isolated white poverty, which is different to what you see, for example, in inner city Bradford with, you know, multi-generational Asian living. So there are different phenotypes of poverty that have different problems. We've mentioned London a, a couple of times and, and, you know, Julianne had mentioned the poverty there. And again, I think more important, like, you know, again, going back to Julianne's point at the start, which is... Um, you know, it's it's difficult to define poverty in one particular way. For me, one of the only benefits of being able to do so is to try and drill down at population level to what the issues are. So when you look at London, the, you know, again, there's a lot of in-work poverty in London, and it's because of the cost of childcare, the cost of housing, you know, the cost of things that it takes to just get by. We should be, you know, revering... Um, working mothers and, and, and treating them as an amazing commodity, you know, people who can bring up children and work at the same time is good for families and good for business. And they say, you know, that, and yet we're just driving them into the ground. And, 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 you know, these types of issues that are seen in London are different to the types of issues that are seen elsewhere. But, but, but the principles are the same. If you look across council wards in London, your life expectancy strongly correlates with the levels of child poverty in that in that ward, same across the country, and 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 the principles are the same. The levels of deprivation are really huge, and I can't believe that stuff that we were writing about in our GCSE geography in 1994 is still stuff that we're seeing in 2021. It's mental. It's absolutely insane that we are even having to discuss those those things now. But it's good to see Tom from what you're saying that trainees are getting involved in. In those discussions, and uh, I've had the uh, the absolute uh, privilege, really, of, of speaking with um, Dr. Kingdon, who's the college president, um, uh, a few times about wider determinants of child health, and she's uh, she, she's really going after this stuff. She's really cross about it. She's really passionate about trying to put something in place that is is meaningful and tangible. And uh, you know, I really look forward to seeing how that. That, that that goes but I, I have to say i think it's heartening to see trainees getting involved in this process yeah well um i suppose fr from a personal example I, I was working in in swansea which is one of the burns areas for well the burn specialist area in in south wales anyway and um we had a, a family that had come in and i had gone down to see from a pediatric perspective 
um, and the the father had actually brought the child in, and he was kind of just pl- pleading with me to to actually get something done with, you know, the the burn was a, a contact burn, and probably because of the housing they were in, and he'd mentioned this so many times, and and nothing had ever happened, um, and so you know, I I wrote to uh, just quickly emailed the kind of safeguarding lead for um, the area where they came from. Um, and they quickly contacted the, you know, the the kind of lead for asylum seekers in that area. Um, and it was amazing. Actually, it was amazing to see within a short amount of time how once you know the right people to contact, things can things can happen. Um, so, so that was that was one aspect. I know another one of the trainees um, wrote an open letter to the government and has written to um, assembly members as well in their areas. And there are a couple of examples of um physical things that we can do to try and improve situations for um people you know in in certain situations um you you uh mentioned about ringing housing agencies and uh, what other uh real life um impacts can can trainees and doctors make on an individual level um within where they work rather than um that um you know speaking to politicians and that kind of aspect? I think people forget how powerful you are as a doctor. Um, and actually people do listen. I think we have, um, although we don't think we have a lot of authority or um, power, I think you know the general public trust us um, and do think we have some kudos in what we say. So, you know, when I wrote the article about poverty, I was absolutely overwhelmed by the response. Um, and the BBC interviewed me for a political um, programme called The View, which um, was broadcast. And the response from the general public was really overwhelming um, and you know, largely positive and well done to me for speaking out. But I was just pointing out that I assumed that everybody else knew, but actually they don't. So I think it's important that as advocates for children, you do speak out um, and do your best for them, regardless of what price you will have to pay for that. And if you raise your head above the parapet, you can be um, assured that you will get knocked down and you will be criticised. But you just have to be um, mindful of that and expect that um, and just do your best and always have the child at the centre of, of how you advocate and what you do. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think the, um, the what, what you finished with there about the idea of sticking your head above above the parapet you know that's what we're paid to do that that you know we you, you might see people complain about how much doctors get paid and i'm not you know that this sort of is a rabbit hole that you can go down and i'm certainly not criticizing people for trying to get to get better contracts and things but if you look at the country like doctors are pretty well compensated for what we do and that's because people want us to be experts but uh, you know as it happens people don't there, there are activists for everything there are activists and they're pretty good activists are good activists they don't need doctors to be activists there are enough activists what they need is for doctors to be experts so the reason that julianne can have that kind of reach in belfast is because of the um is, is because of the experience that she brings to to, to the to, to the conversation you, you know, when Julianne gives uh, real life explanations of, what, of, of the types of situations that, that, that happen in ED 
in West Belfast, people will listen. And, and it's the same as, you know, what, what, what I get involved in with respiratory paediatrics. It, it, you, you know, it might feel a little uncomfortable sticking your neck out there and talking about things that might seem political with a small P or, you know, might seem like you'll get criticism. You will get criticism. It's just as simple as that, that as soon as you start talking about things for the most deprived people, generally speaking, a load of just cross middle-aged men come after you on social media and call you this, that and the other. And you just need to ignore it because generally speaking, they're just stupid. And and actually, you know, this whole kind of um, thing relies on, on, on us finding our voice. We've been a really missing part of these discussions and, and, we, and we need to be uh, offering our, our, our expertise into this. In answer to your question, Tom, about, I, I think you were saying, you, you know, what are the things that we can do when we come across problems in, in clinic? And it all just comes down to um, basically the stuff that we all said when we went into medical school interviews about compassion and, mm. you know, listening to people and wanting to make a benefit and wanting to help. You, you know, you nobody's going to pat you on the back for staying a bit late and phoning a housing agency and telling them off but that's the kind of thing that can really impact on someone's you know someone's life but for the rest of their life and at the very least it gives the families that you see a feeling that you care and again you know we talked before about stigma we talked before about um this being the machinery of inequality we talked about people's self-esteem and self-worth and actually seeing you know a doctor that julianne's right you know people often respect coming to see the the, the the doctor and seeing that someone's taking the time to try and improve their circumstances can mean a lot to 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 people themselves and um and unfortunately like one of the things that i quite often see is so i do a, a bpd clinic bronchopulmonary dysplasia clinic and you know quite often mums will come and tell me about problems with their housing and say we're not getting anywhere and i'll phone the housing agency there in the clinic and I'll get somewhere. And it's just ridiculous to me that people will listen to me instead mm. of listening to a mum. Mm. But that just is the reality of the, of the thing. I guess the other thing along, you know, the kinds of things that you guys have done today with this call, you know, setting up a podcast, trying to um, get conversations going, trying to educate, trying to address all these things. Um, when we're doing some work about what can happen on the shop floor and this is one of them you know thinking about what we're actually doing to make our knowledge of this better these are things that absolutely can be trainee led don't wait for your consultants to to arrange a lunchtime departmental meeting about poverty just get off do it yourself you you know this is a field that we that we really want to see some long-term benefits in and, and and trainees um taking the lead on that take trainees taking the lead on things like um you know even simple things like translating uh, so so this isn't um from the uk but I, i've got a friend who's an intensivist in amsterdam and she tells me that every year loads and loads of migrant children drown in the canals of amsterdam because the signs aren't you know, they're just written in Dutch. You, you know, trainees spotting little things like this that may seem insignificant can save someone's life later. You know, translating a car, sa- a car seat safety leaflet into, you know, Arabic might save a baby's life. 
you know, somewhere down the line, all, all of these types of little things. If it crosses your mind that it might be a good thing to do, just do it. And and that's that's probably um, the, the probably the best advice I can give on that is that just do whatever you come across that that you think might make a difference because it might seem small, it might seem inconsequential. You might never see the benefits of this, but somebody might, and that makes it worth it. I think you've just completely answered what I was going to ask you guys next in that like, I'm right at the start of my training and was just going through this chat. I was just thinking, you know, I'm I'm about to start ST1 and what is it that I can do? And all these things that you've said are just the little things that we just think about and think, oh, well, I could do this little thing, but will it really make a difference? And just thinking in mind that actually it's the sometimes it's the smaller the smaller things that have a real impact for our patients and for their families and that just in throughout training I just need to take that with me so thank you I just yeah you completely took the question I was gonna ask so no it absolutely will make a difference and all of those little things make huge differences to people's lives and you just you just have to be bothered you, know, you have to go above and beyond and just care. I think that's really important. And just make the effort. It's not a job. It is, you know, it's, it's about helping people. It's about doing the best in the circumstances that you're in for the person in front of you. Yeah, I agree. And I think um, I've, I've said this before, but, uh, you know, if you take away somehow, take away the judgment and it makes it difficult when you're doing it every day and there's, 20 30 people to get through and you just you know you really want to get to the end of the day you start to lose that really putting every single patient that you see making them the most important patient for that however long they need and that if you're able to yeah park the judgment at the door and say that there's a reason that you're in the position you're in and they're in the position they're in and it's not anything really other than luck and if you can just say, if you had the same experience as them, you would be making the same choices as them. It makes you, I think, a more compassionate uh, health, you know, health professional. And I think you'll you'll do better for for them and their family. Um, so yeah, that, that's kind of one of the thoughts that I kind of regularly have on it. Well, well, one of the you're exactly right to highlight that you know we sometimes. So again, you know, we, we we sometimes forget what we said at our medical. Our, our best version of ourselves is what we said in our medical student interview. So that when we wanted to be going to medical school, that is the person that we should strive to be. And there's a uh, there, there was a really famous quote from uh, Terry Wogan, the you know famous presenter. And and I'd only heard this after he died, but someone asked him how many viewers he has at any time, and he said just one. Uh, and we need to get back to that in medicine. You know, the person that's come to you, we need to be the people, you know, we, amongst the people that start to break this cycle of stigma against people in poverty. You're, you're exactly right, Tom. It's not that people make bad choices. They make the best choices they can. And we need to be more sympathetic and less judgy about that, mm. I think. Um, you're, yeah, you're, you're, you're right. That's good advice, I think, for... Yeah, Rebecca and I, we, we spoke to um, a, a wonderful lady called Kerry who works for No Limits, which is a, a charity in Southampton. And she's a, 
kind of support worker essentially in in the pediatric emergency department and she works with families and she has time to speak to them about all kinds of issues and and uh, <laughs> I know that you uh, don't like the term signposting but she she knows she she knows intricately the um the uh, charities and the support that's around in the area where she works and because she knows everyone and she knows their names and you know and what you what you actually get out of the the service when you use it she's able to kind of really authentically um you know speak to families and say what they could get out of this rather than you, you know I, I agree I agree what you say if you just say there's a website it's called the council uh go have a look at it and uh, <laughs> and there'll be something there for you yeah, yeah you, you need it needs to be you know you need to do some of the work yeah yeah and, and what you've highlighted there about um about uh uh sort of the, the, this this lady in southampton it, it is exactly a model that works so if you look at the states and if you look at uh, where the investment has been in asthma you know there's been hundreds of millions of dollars invested in um how do you make black people uh, uh black people's asthma outcomes anywhere near the outcomes of white people and actually it doesn't come down to stupid things about vitamin d or the dose of your steroids but what it comes down to is the most effective thing and the most cost effective thing is just employing black lay people to go to other black people's houses and talk to them and 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 we're looking at the same kind of thing here and you said the word authentic and and that authenticity that level of trust and respect is is really important we're just working up a model in liverpool at the moment in preparation for the rsv surge um which basically, you know, I mean, we're recording this podcast in what, the end of August. The, the children who are going to have the most severe bronchiolitis haven't, this winter haven't been born yet. And and so actually the best way that we can start to address this is to get ladies who and, and, and dads who have, uh, you know, uh, had kids in poorer parts of, of, of the city that often have worse uh, process outcomes for things like breastfeeding rates and smoking rates and housing quality and social outcomes and things is is to get people who've lived through that and 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 you know as, as with marcus rashford and others that that lived experience of being in that community and and whatnot and um, carries a huge a, a huge level of respect for for other parents so you're right that peer approach to things is a slightly different type of signposting to um to, to us doing it i mean to be honest i'll be perfectly honest and, and this is a <laughs> this is an unpopular viewpoint oh, <laughs> i'll preface it with that but I, I hate the term social prescribing I, I hate it i hate it because it implies that we sit in our um yeah little ivory towers and 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 pass people down through to you know, to, to, to volunteers and third sector agencies and stuff like this. And I, I just don't like it. What we really need to do is to follow that Southampton model of bringing non-health things into health. You know, I've, I've been very critical of, of, of my hospital, for example, in the sense that we're in the poorest city in, in England in, in some ways, you know, certainly one of the poorest cities in England. And we've got a Costa, a WH Smith, you, you know, this stuff, bank, being in hospital bankrupts the families that come to, to see us. You know, wh- why have we not got, um, you know, absolutely embedded in all our clinical pathways? Why have we not got 
um, you know, financial advice for families. Why have we not got smoking cessation people employed by the hospital, working in the hospital, or, 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 or rooms available for people in smoking cessation agencies outside the hospital to come here? You know, we know that gambling is one of the biggest drivers for, for financial destitution when it comes to, um, uh, to, to addiction, and, and, you know, not just for um, families from deprivation, families from money, you know, can go bankrupt because of gambling. But it's not something we address in the hospital. We need to be bringing that stuff, you know, all of those things that are seen as outside health, we need to be bringing them front and centre into our into our pathways. And it sounds really exciting what they're doing in Southampton. That will be a lot more beneficial than a lot of the social prescribing models, which all rely on signposting that I see bandied about the place. Yeah, and I'm just wondering how, um, you know, I, I love, you know, I love the idea of bringing bringing people into hospitals and and having those conversations because, you know, a ten hour shift for me in ED goes l- like in the click of a finger, whereas, <laughs> you know, people coming up and asking me every hour how long it's going to be before their child gets seen, um, are, are just waiting. Kind of, there's, I feel like that's time wasted where. Um, they could be not learn not learning things, but you know at least getting some some form of assistance and support. And the same on the ward, like you know, there's not a lot to do when you're on the ward um, or in the clinic waiting room or wherever it is. There's massive opportunity to use that time and add, add value to those um, to those times when people visit hospitals or community centres or wherever. For, for people, we, we've talked a lot about what people can do then, you know, as, in, as individuals and departments um, and, and for themselves on a kind of national level. Where, where can people who are interested in this go and find more information? Uh, just a, a few um, resources that you think might be useful for people to, to get more information. Uh, first of all, Julianne. Um, so I think the college, the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health has finally... Um, taking this on and you know as Ian mentioned and um, Camilla Kingdon is is definitely embracing child poverty as one of the um, policies going forward for the for RCPCH so there's there's quite a wealth of information on um on the RCPCH um, I would encourage people to you know to get to know their own local environments because often people just live in their own little bubbles when they don't go outside of of where they live um, and if you just open your eyes and look around you, you'll find out a wealth of information um, and, you know, do try and get involved. Lovely. And, and Ian, some other, anything else to add from there? No, I, I think that's a great starting point for people. I would, I, I would point people towards Julianne's uh, article. I don't know if you could share that with the, with the podcast. But yeah, it's, we it's a really will. amazing, uh, uh, amazing piece of writing, very powerful. Um, and, and a really important piece of work. I, I would point, point point people towards that, and I would also um, towards uh, certainly people living in England in Public Health England. There are some really good uh, resources where you can drill down to um, you, you know different areas where where you work or live and look at um, uh, uh, inequalities. So the the NHS atlas uh, variation and. Yeah, I think the other key reports, read the Marmot report, read the National Child Mortality Database report, uh, which is, uh, again, you know, a really important piece of, of work. 
and Goody Singh has done some really good work on, um, you know, giving people information on how to, you know, ask those questions in sort of um, paediatric clinic settings. Um, she wrote a paper there recently, which is extremely useful um, and, you know, might form the basis of, of quips, you know, for some of your listeners. Um, really, really good piece of work. Yeah, I think she's done a 15 minute conversations. That's an EDC, hasn't she? That we can also link in the in the show notes. Well, thanks for joining me, Rebecca. And thanks very much to, to Julianne and to Ian for all of your kind of insightful information and comments today. And that's it for that episode. I just want to say thank you again to Dr. Sinner, Dr. Maney, to Tom and to Rebecca for recording that episode for us. Please join us again next week for another episode. Thank you for listening to Dragon Bites.